cliffcentral.com. All right, it is time for the burning platform, and we are going to find out exactly. Is this too loud or too soft for you? Too loud. Clinton? Too loud. All right, there we go. Well, we've got uh, Glynis <laughs> Breitenbach joining us in just a moment. But just to remind you of uh, what happened in Parliament, I'm going to play you a little bit of this to give you an idea of why Glynis was the talk of the town last week and why everybody uh, is suddenly anointing her as uh, the hero of the moment. And I don't think she doesn't deserve it by any means, but I think she's quite sanguine about what public attention means as well. We'll speak to her in a minute. Just to refresh your memory, here's what happened when the Minister of Police, uh, Becky Taylor, was in Parliament. way of talking with the families, the victims, Indeed, the point is taken on board. But broadly, it would be good to say this has happened and we have arrested those people, people of South Africa, as it has happened. Minister, I, I would like to say two things to you because I probably only have a minute left. You don't. <laughs> uh, I don't. Yankee, give me a minute. <laughs> you give me a minute. I will give you that minute uh, so that you assist the committee going forward. To say two things to you. One, please don't lecture me on what the police do and don't do. I know what they do, I know what they don't do. I did it for years. You can teach me nothing about police investigations with respect. Secondly, you, and I'm glad you take the point, and I'm glad that you concede it, it's an absolute disgrace that the victims of this man were not warned, were not prepared, were not protected. It's an absolute disgrace, and you should hang your head in shame, all of you. It's no way to treat people. But the most important thing is, answer me this. If while you were so busy protecting the secrecy of your investigation and deciding not to warn the South African public who incidentally uh, expect all of us here to protect them, and we've all failed, all of us, if Bester had murdered another woman had raped another woman, what would you have said then? Well, I'm not a speculator. That has not happened. Yes, it did, it did not happen. And, and secondly, I know you are a prosecutor, a, a, a vintage one for that matter. But, but don't, tell me, don't tell me about investigating and the police. You only deal with that after they've investigated. Yes, prosecution, indeed, but investigation, absolutely no. Not for you. Thank you. All right, well, here she is, vintage prosecutor, <laughs> and now the DA's shadow minister of justice, Glynis Breitenbach. Glynis, it's nice to have you on the show. Thank you. I know you've got a busy schedule, and I appreciate your time this morning. Uh, Canton and Pumi and I can't wait to get started, but um, you've been getting... A lot of love on social media. I know it doesn't mean a huge amount to you, but South Africa is just so desperate for any kind of um, leadership slash accountability at the moment. Uh, are you surprised at all by the reaction to you just doing your job in Parliament? Um, hi, Gareth, and hi, everybody. Uh, certainly, I was uh, very surprised, uh, taken aback. Um, I have learned a long, long, long time ago not to attach too much value to what happens uh, on social media. And uh, as everybody knows, I don't uh, participate in it myself. Um, I think it's a bit of an indictment on, on where we are as a country that, that, uh, that people were so enthralled 
by this exchange in, in Parliament. Because it is what Parliament does, uh, and it is what should happen every single day in Parliament. It's, it's what MPs are supposed to be doing, holding uh, institutions to account. But I think South Africans are, are so used to, um, you know, people not being held accountable, there being no consequences for appalling behavior, uh, for appalling failures day after day after day, that, that any kind of uh, holding people to account is, has this effect, um, you know, which, which just means that we're in a really bad place. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start, though, as much as it is a bad place. Um, it's, a, it's a great place to start the conversation. Parliament uh, grilling the police ministry and the justice ministry seems appropriate to me. You, you also had a fair go at the G4S security group. But isn't it an indictment on the public sector and the bureaucracy that a private company had to be called in to manage a prison in the first place? And I mean, these guys clearly were out of their depth. They obviously couldn't answer any questions. They found themselves completely wanting during the, the questioning that I saw where you were asking them pretty basic questions. Um, but isn't the real disaster that there is a Department of Correctional Services and they're not doing what Department of Correctional Services should do? Well, you know, the public-private uh, partnership with, with private prisons has a long history. And uh, it came into being a long time before any of this committee was in Parliament. Um, I was uh, still happily uh, putting people in jail at that time, which was around 2002, I think. Um, and so, uh, as I understand the history of this of this issue, and I don't have uh, first-hand knowledge, uh, is that we needed more prison space, and we needed particularly more... Uh, a maximum security prison space, and uh, there was no budget within the Department of Correctional Services to to accommodate that. And so, this public-private partnership was entered into at that time uh, to so that that you know pri private enterprise would build the prisons, capacitate them, and run them for their own profit for 25 years. Uh, after which, those prisons uh, fully maintained, well resourced. <clears throat> and in good condition, would then revert back to correctional services. So it was seen as a as a win-win. Um, mm -hmm. Correctional services would get two private prisons that were uh, that were state of the art because they, you know, as compared to other prisons in South Africa, they are uh, well built, well maintained, well resourced, well capacitated. Uh, they they revert back to DCS in 2026 and 2027 respectively. Uh, and the uh, private enterprise uh, get on the horse and head to the sunset. So, so it's seen as a win-win, but uh, it clearly, you know, it hasn't been a win-win because no. DCS is paying upwards of uh, 45 million a month uh, for each of those private prisons. That's uh, in anybody's language a hell of a lot of money. Sure, they require to look after approximately 2,900 odd inmates. They can never be. Less, they can never be more. They have no overcrowding. So conditions in those prisons are optimal <clears throat> as prisons go. And, uh, and for this, they get paid a lot of money and they have one job. Their job is to keep maximum security prisoners in prison uh, in a humane fashion and in good health, uh, something they failed uh, completely and utterly to do. 
and for which they incidentally accept no accountability. It's, uh, the, the, the ridiculousness of it uh, is quite bizarre. Guys, I'm just doing a quick calculation here based on what Linus has just said to us. And if you take that 45 million a month and divide it by 2,900 prisoners, so that's roughly 15,500 rand per prisoner per month that, uh, that we're ending up paying. So I'm very curious, uh, Linus, would you be able to give us a sense of how that compares with what is being paid at the other facilities that under correctional services? And, yeah, you know, one of the other interesting things that came up for me was, you know, clearly we've had these um, uh, escapes that have been identified at the private prisons. Do we have any stats that you're aware of in terms of what the number of escapes are like from our other prisons? Are they more porous, less porous? Uh, you know, but I'm not sure what the yardstick <laughs> is of the private sector incompetence versus Public correctional. Section, yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, it's it's not comparing apples with apples for starters. So, um, <coughs> public prisons run by DCS are are not state of the art by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know if any of you have ever visited a prison. Uh, if not, I invite you to accompany me to visit one. Um, right. If they they're quite dreadful, um, and, and prisons, let me say, are in my own personal view uh, not meant to be a summer camp. So, you know, it's not supposed to be the most pleasant part of your life being in prison. But, no. but having said that, your punishment is being in prison. Your, your freedom has been taken away. Your, your right to make decisions about when and where you do things is removed from you. That's your punishment. Um, the prison itself shouldn't be your punishment. So our prisons are hell holes, generally speaking, and most of them, in my view, are an, an, a blight on society and human rights abuses. They should be bulldozed. They can't be fixed. They should be bulldozed, rebuilt, and we should rethink our entire uh, system of incarceration. It isn't working. It doesn't work. And it's a shocking, shocking disgrace. Having said that, people do escape, and and, and for good reason. Um, Again, it's not the best place to be. Uh, People do escape in DCS a lot more than in private prisons. But you can't compare the two because the private prisons are relatively new. Uh, they're well constructed. They have state-of-the-art equipment, uh, state-of-the-art everything. So uh, technically they're, they're way ahead of, of DCS. They have um, the best surveillance equipment. They have the best uh, perimeter fencing. They, ha- they are much better resourced with regards to uh, a ratio of, of inmates and, and, uh, and warders. So you can't compare the two. There are escapes from the private prisons, which is shocking. They shouldn't be. Given what they are, where they are, what they have, there should be no escapes from private prisons. The only way that can be escapes from private prisons is by way of corruption. Um, escapes from DCS, on the other hand, are often as a result of... of um, holes in the fence, I guess. Yeah, not working, the lock's not working, the water taking a nap, whatever. Um, you know, uh, probably also as a result of corruption, but not on the scale that, that you must see at private prisons because it's so much more difficult to escape from a private prison. But there are escapes. You know, last year there were 
uh, from the Malmesbury prison, which is one of the, the better prisons in South Africa, quite well run, quite modern, quite well resourced, quite well kept uh, in, as far as infrastructure is concerned. There's 18 inmates escaped on the same day last year. They were all rearrested within 24 hours. Um, and that's the difference between those escapes and this one. This oh, one, yeah. I worked out of the prison, they still can't tell us how, despite all this fancy equipment, despite all the perimeter fencing, despite having a much better water inmate ratio, uh, they can't tell us how they got out there and say they don't know. Uh, and, and, and they made no attempt to, A, publicize the escape, and B, there was no attempt made to rearrest him. And I'm quite sure that if Ground Up hadn't published, uh, we would all be happily unaware that Tabu Bester was living his best life in Hyde Park and doing his shopping at Thrust. Mm. <laughs> well, you, you know, so as entertaining as it was to watch uh, the the committee grill all the the various players in this um, fiasco, I'm quite interested to know that other than that, what kind of recourse, if any, can we expect? What what now? What then? You know, they they were very like the G4S guys were very. You know, they're not taking any kind of <laughs> responsibility. <laughs> responsibility. <at all. laughs> no. So, and then what? You know, yeah, so, so so what happens next? Well, the G4S guys were, in my view, totally unprepared. They came there thinking they were dealing with a bunch of idiots and they made a big mistake because, in my view, not myself, but the entire committee uh, performed very well. Everyone was well prepared. Mm-hmm. Everyone had done a lot of research and everyone, every single member of that committee asked um asked very uh, penetrating questions. Um, they came there totally unprepared, but they came there with this laid-back attitude that absolutely outraged me. They, they started with an extension. Yeah, they, yeah they, they, they don't come when we ask them to come. They thumb their nose at the portfolio committee. When we summon them, they arrive and send us a, a little, I don't know, what was it, a, a 12-page uh, report that that's including the title page and the last page that said thank you and uh, and that they took them until midnight the previous night to prepare well you know um, shame and um, then they, and then they send you two people who can't answer any questions yeah, because they're no first no 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 that was that was their subcontractor Integratron they sent a, right. a director and a, a legal advisor who were really like two little hairs in the headlights completely out of their depth, had no answers to any of the questions, and it was very unfair of their company to send them there. They had no first-hand knowledge of anything. They were not hands-on for anything at all. They came there with a hearsay, an affidavit opposed to that was complete and utter hearsay, and they had no answers. It wasn't their fault, but, you know, to skewer people like that on a public platform is, is, is no feat, and it was, and eventually, I mean, we just stopped asking them questions because it was quite clear. Uh, that it was going nowhere and that, and that they but, were hung out to dry. Yeah. But Glynis, you did uncover something interesting. And, and again, you said preparation. I was quite impressed to see that you knew who the holding company was, who the major shareholder in that holding company was, and how that major shareholder was also a big donor to the ANC. Now, you know, despite all that we hear about governance and uh, how, how many lo- hoops and, and, and rings people have to jump through to get any kind of state contracts, it appears that if you just know the right people, 
you can still get whatever you need out of government in terms of, of expenditure and what do they call it? Procurement. Um, so, so how does this kind of thing get through a system which we are told because of all the red tape and the many different filters it has to pass through? We're told, no, 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 it's foolproof. There's no way corruption can possibly happen. It sounds to me like it did. It certainly did. There's no question about it. And if you go and look at all those little, I think there are 10 of them, uh, shareholding companies, if you're going to look at who's behind all of those companies, all ANC bigwigs, um, remember these contracts were entered into in, in 2000 or 2002, a long time ago, so they've been uh, skimming the cream off the top for many, many years. And, of course, it's a corrupt contract. There's no question about it. But so I, I still don't know. Is there going to be consequence? You know, so we well, even as they were unprepared, all of that, and, and I mean, I think Justice uh, Cameron was was also quite fascinating in what he had to say and why he leaked all of this information. But is there going to be consequence? Well, there, there, there must be. So the Portfolio Committee has resolved to continue this inquiry. We will, um, we will schedule more days and, and summons more people and probe further. Uh, and so we, we're satisfied that we understand what happened because we have an oversight function. And so we have to, the committee's responsibility here is to make sure that A, we understand what happened, and B, that we ensure that the DCS puts in place systems and procedures that will prevent this happening again. So that's our job, and we're going to do it, make no mistake. But B, if Kele or Lamola had an ounce of integrity, they would resign. <laughs> of course they don't, right. and so they won't. If Cyril, bless him, had an ounce of backbone. He would fire them. But of course he doesn't. So he won't. So Glynis, can I ask you about something that's a lot closer to home? I know it's been many years since you were at the NPA and, uh, you know, people have forgotten your story there too, because you were kind of hounded out and you had to fight for survival. And, you know, you've, you've taken on a political role, which, I mean, I, I admire you for doing that because politics is such a horrible business. But before this, you were a prosecutor. The NPA comes up almost every week on this goddamn show. And I cannot see a single thing that they're doing. You were in the NPA. I just want to know from you objectively, as you possibly can put it, what are the NPA doing? Have we arrested anyone in South Africa in the last five years under Shamila Batoy? And is anything going on there at all except people pushing pencils around? Uh, yeah, you know, Gareth, the NPA has a sad, sad story. Um, in fairness to uh, Shamila Batoy, she inherited uh, what in Afrikaans they call a bankrot budo. Uh, so she inherited a, a, a deeply uh, flawed and fraught organization that had been very, very seriously damaged by the Zuma era of uh, hollowing out any kind of investigative or prosecutorial capacity in the NPA and the entire criminal justice system. Um, I think she's, I think she underestimated the job and I, I think she underestimated the damage that was done. I think she's tried her very best to, to put it on the right road. I must say that after, as you say, all this time, I'm a little disappointed. I don't see much uh, action. I, I honestly don't see much improvement. They, they come and they report to the portfolio committee regularly and and it's always just watch the space in the next six months and 
then that six months pass and, and very, very little, if anything, has happened. So it's, it's, it's exceptionally disappointing. And, and uh, there haven't been, uh, despite the, um, the spate of uh, arrests last, late last year when I think they arrested five or six or seven people, but none of the, of the um, you know, high-profile people. They did have a small profile, but none of the high-profile people. And arrests don't, you know, one swallow doesn't make a summer. Arrests are nothing. If you don't follow them up with successful prosecutions where people are convicted and bums go to jail. So, and then you forget about it for the next six months and then eventually you quietly withdraw those cases and nobody ever asks questions again. True. I mean, we've seen so many people. We saw uh, the the VPS guys come into the special criminal court and they would read their charges and then that went away. Then we saw uh, Transnet coming in and that went away. We saw ESCOM coming in and that went away. But I have a, my question is, is like a little speculative, you know, lots of organizations get into trouble, which is where the NPA is. And what they require is they require somebody to turn it around. A turnaround specialist is what they would say in private sector. If you were brought in, what are the quick wins that you believe could turn it around? Or is it just, that's it, you know, it's fraught and we must just throw it away? No, no, the NPA can certainly be fixed. And it's, it's unfair for me to comment on what I would do because I'm not there. Um, what I would do is I would, uh, I would fire a number of people who were obviously blatantly and to the knowledge of everybody involved in state capture uh, of the NPA. And if they litigated, so be it. Uh, litigate on the side. And then I would uh, appoint um, people of my choice, regardless of any noise, um, who I know can do the job, and I would allow them to do the job. Um, having said that, it's not quite that easy to do it, but it is what I would do, regardless of how easy or difficult it would be. Yeah. I, I, I do. I mean, I hinted at it just now, but I, I think it's worthy of, of a little bit of storytelling here on your part because you had a very, very ugly and, and difficult time after, after they, uh, they, they, they essentially hounded you out of the NPA. I just want to, you know, if we can revisit that for a second, just to give a bit of context to this, because a lot of people might only have seen you now with this Tabo Besta thing. Unfortunately, this is the attention span of the average person, right? Uh, and they don't know about any of this background. Just remind people what happened and who you were up against and what they did at that stage and how hard you had to fight just to, um, just to, to, to keep, you know, to keep yourself alive for starters. <laughs> Uh, well, it's a long time ago, and, I, and, it, and it's like it's over, and I've moved on. Uh, but essentially, I wanted to prosecute uh, a, a person called Richard Mcluley. He was the head of crime intelligence in the police. Uh, the powers that be at the NPA, so uh, Lawrence Mkwebi and uh, and Antobo Jiba were uh, uh, wanting him to not be prosecuted. Obviously, he was connected to, to them and to, to Zuma uh, quite, uh, quite tightly. And, uh, and Mkwebe instructed me to withdraw the charges against Mkwebe. I refused. So he, he wrote a letter to Mkwebe's attorneys telling him the matter had been withdrawn. Hmm. 
So we had little choice but to withdraw it on, a, on, a, on an absolutely provisional basis. Um, one of the other prosecutors who worked with me and I then penned a, a memorandum to Jiba telling her that why we thought Mpwedi uh, was wrong and saying that uh, if the decision was not reversed, uh, we would take the decision on review. Uh, well knowing what the consequences of that would be. Uh, so, you know, days after I delivered that uh, memorandum, I was suspended. Uh, I was disciplined for an abuse of power in, in a, another case altogether. Uh, had no connection to this matter. Um, really thumb-sucked, uh, quite honestly, crap. Uh, 16 charges of nonsense that kept us busy for two years. Uh, and of, of which I was acquitted on all 16. Mm -hmm. I then went back to work. They gave me no work. I sat around for a year doing bugger all. And then, uh, then you know, Helen Zilla phoned me up and said, how would you like to come to Parliament? So I said, well, it sounds a hell of a lot more interesting than what I'm doing now, so why not? <laughs> so I went to Parliament. Then they, then, then they had the goal. They couldn't win a disciplinary on a balance of probability. So then they had the goal to charge me criminally for exactly the same stuff but precisely the same stuff. Uh, and then they prosecuted my attorney with me. And when, when in further particulars we asked why they're prosecuting the attorney, they said, because he's your attorney. That was their reply. Is that what in they said event, in the particulars? My word. In any, in any <laughs> event, two years later and a lot of time wasted, uh, we were both uh, acquitted on all of those charges as well. So, sure. yeah. What a, what a waste of time. And, and state resource. And All state that resource. money. Uh, you know, what's, what's happened to Richard Mdluli, by the way? Uh, he went to prison for the, the charges in relation to Opa Ramachibe. Um, they eventually, after a massive cop-out on the part of the DPP in Johannesburg, uh, they charged him with assault and, and I think kidnapping instead of murder. He was uh, convicted of the assault and kidnapping. He went to jail, I think, for five years. He's out now, as far as I'm aware. Um, but the charges that I wanted to prefer against him for uh, uh, fraud, theft, and corruption are being now being prosecuted. Um, and he has appeared once or twice on that. I don't know how. The, the trial hasn't yet started. Yeah. A long, long walk to freedom, or in this case, prison. Um, yeah, but... <laughs> yeah. So you know, one of the things that I'm constantly trying to focus my mind on is not so much how you catch perpetrators after they've actually committed the deed, but how do you put in place preventive measures that are going to prevent them getting to that stage uh, in the first place? And if I look in terms of the criminal justice system, obviously before stuff gets onto Shamila Bato's desk, there's the entire incompetence of the police investigative process that has to be uh, taken care of. And you end up with situations like documents being lost, misplaced, yeah, inability to track it. But today we actually have access to technology that does allow us to do tracking of this. And, you know, at the most simple level, you know, if, if one is able to simply take a photograph of a charge sheet and upload it into a blockchain uh, protected environment, which means that it's never going to be deleted, and which means that dockets are never going to be lost. And all of this can be done at very little cost. Surely there's an opportunity here for Parliament to be coming up with a framework that says we can put in place such a system 
which means that the ability of people to crook the system then then goes away. I, I don't understand why conversations don't go in that direction instead of, um, you know, just simply the question of capacity. <laughs> yeah, well, again, it's a, that is a question of capacity, unfortunately. The uh, integrated criminal justice system is a conversation that we've been having since I got to Parliament and, and for 10 years before then. Um, it's been a system in the making for the last 20 or so years. Millions, if not billions, have been spent on it. And there's absolutely nothing, zero, to show for it. Nothing. It is the constant bitch and gripe of our committee about why this thing is making no progress. And there are long, convoluted reports produced about, about where it is, but in fact it's nowhere. And, uh, and, and this is exactly what you're talking about, an integrated criminal justice system that's based on an electronic format uh, that will allow not only the police to feed in documents to the NPA, but but to gather information and intelligence from um, customs officials, from uh, the financial intelligence center, from uh, the information that's, that is uh, allowable and available from uh, the revenue services, information from the Reserve Bank, um, all of that information into one system so that you have the optimal view of everybody that you're looking at. It's a system that functions very well in other places in the world. And they, they I mean, yeah, we, we just, they can't get, the, they can't get it in, going. And one of the reasons is, I mean, forgive me, and I, and I don't mean this badly because really there, there are many prosecutors who go to work every day and do their very best and do it well. And there are many, many, many policemen who go to work every day under terrible circumstances and place themselves in great danger and do their best every single day. And we should be very, very grateful to all of them. But the fact of the matter is if you go into a police station and just stand there and look around for five minutes, can you tell me that there's somebody there who's going to upload this stuff into a system like the blockchain system? I think it's very possible to actually create that environment. I mean, all of us know how to upload videos onto TikTok as a very basic example. And just a simple okay. interface that allows you to take a picture of the charge sheet. <laughs> you know, to me, sounds kind of like a no-brainer. And, you know, perhaps the thing at this point is, you know, given that Parliament is not in a position to actually do this, surely we can end up with a scenario where we can get enough of the tech companies that we have sitting down in, in Stellenbosch to actually get together and build the freaking thing and give it to government and say, here it is, and start using it, and then we take them to court and force them to use it. Yeah, uh, I think I think uh, moves have been made along those lines. The, the, you know, once again, it's the old uh, it's the old corruption song. Everything, uh, you know, computers get stolen, uh, get sold towards the end of the month. Um, uh, it's it's, re it's, re it's really difficult to steal servers in the cloud. <laughs> trust me. Uh, it, you know, it's 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 not that difficult to. Steal. To screw it up, and, and if there's a political will to screw it up, they will, it will be done. It's like somebody walking past the the uh, the, fan, the 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 belt that feeds coal to the the power stations and sticking a screwdriver in the wheel. Mm -hmm. it's, no, that's, so, so the capacity that you are actually talking about is is lack of will. 
That's There's what we're missing. We're missing. It could happen. An absolute, if, if they wanted it to happen, if it was important, even if it was only a small pilot project, it could have been done by now. Millions. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, I, I don't recall the amount now, but you would be staggered. Millions have been spent on it every year. And there is no progress whatsoever. All right. So, Glynis, I mean, you you are the shadow minister of justice. And I mean, justice in this country, we hear, you know, these campaigns against gender based violence. We see the president and Becky Taylor going around and paying lip service to a whole lot of uh, of communities and taking in lots and lots of donations. Correct. President. Right. Taking but, big failing donations. Warn, but failing to warn the victims of Tabo Vesta that he was out there. Big right. uh, gender based violence. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it's a lot of hypocrisy. But you, you as you know, the the shadow minister of justice, like justice is such a big, ugly thing to try and fix. Do you first of all believe that our judiciary are sufficiently independent? Do you second of all believe that we have the means to bring the justice department and the various parts of that, the courts themselves, the NPA? the police, their investigative capacity, all of these different parts that need to work in concert to make justice something which the average South African can believe in and rely upon. Is this too big a task? I mean, where would you even begin? Okay, so, I mean, that's, that's largely a, a political question. Um, so, yes, uh, your answer, to answer your question, yes, I do believe it's possible. It's okay. a massive job. I don't regard justice as a big, ugly thing. Uh, I, I regard justice as uh, an essential essential tool to making a society the kind of place I want to live in. So where, where guilty people are prosecuted and convicted and innocent people are acquitted. Um, and that's the kind of system we want to build. And it's entirely possible. It's entirely possible if all the role players uh, work together, um, consult each other. And, and you don't have to start. It's a bottom-up process. You know, it's, it's not a top-down process. It's a bottom-up process. You have to provide proper leader. If there's, there's no integrity in the leadership, there's no uh, belief in the leadership, there's no discipline. And it starts, it starts there. But if, 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 you know, if your, if your minister of police thinks it's okay to blow 1.4 million bucks to go in a private jet to pick up, uh, two, uh, low lives, then honestly, uh, how do you expect any discipline from uh, the constables and the sergeants and the warrant officers in the police? Why would they have respect for him? Why would they, why would they consider their job worthwhile? So, you know, you need to instill a culture of accountability, a culture, uh, and a culture of discipline and, and enforce it in the police, in the prosecuting authority, in correctional services, and then the system will work. It can work. And it's absolutely doable and in a much shorter space of time than you think. So I, I'm talking and about accountability. Our judiciary yeah. is, is independent and our judiciary yes. has all our backsides out of the fire so many times. It's just not true. Mm. Well, one of the things that I'm asking, and you remind me of this when you talk about the 1.4 million private jet. Are we going to see a commission around why we couldn't get the Guptas back here to stand trial? Because hmm, that has been a fiasco of note as well. Are you, in your committee, going 
going to try and hold these guys accountable so we can at least hear what went wrong? So I've written to the um, chairperson of my committee um, to ask that we have a sitting where the MPA and uh, and the minister come and brief us about this extradition um, debacle. Uh, I've not yet had a reply, but in his defense, he's been as busy as I am, so uh, I'm sure we'll hear from him quite soon. And I, I must tell you that I, you know, extraditions in their very nature are, are difficult. They're complex, they're intricate. They require a lot of uh, work, a lot of documentation. So no extradition is easy and no extradition is a, is a foregone conclusion. Um, I don't know if, if anything was wrong with this application. I've asked for a copy. Um, I have not yet received it. Um, if there was something wrong with it, you know, it's a done deal. There's no point in crying over spilled milk. Uh, you, can't, you can't fix it and you can't unscramble the egg. Uh, the Guptas are gone. They're no longer in the UAE. So what we need to do is we need to, if there was something wrong with it, we need to learn from that mistake, fix it, and uh, do better with the next application, wherever they may find themselves, if and when they're arrested. Um, so that, that's, what, that's what we can do with this application. If there was nothing wrong with it, if the issue lies with uh, the UAE, well, then that's something that must be dealt with on a, on a diplomatic level and, and should be dealt with. And, uh, and then we'll certainly press for that to be done. Uh, but, but so, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is that the Guptas have flown the coup. They're no longer in the UAE. So a new <laughs> red needs to be issued. Uh, they, when they cross an international border again, you know, somebody needs to arrest them. And whatever country that is, we'll need to bring a new application. So Glynis, what do you think of the idea that has been touted by a lot of people that we should we should now go after the 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 political crooks the people who've benefited from tenders from you know crooked donor things with with taking money out of the treasury with mismanaging money all of that stuff and what we should do is set up a separate court and let this court just try these kinds of people and they have the ability to uh, there's an amnesty let's say for three months where people can come forward own up, mea culpa, pay back the money, whatever they can, and then they won't be prosecuted, or at least they won't go to jail. Um, and uh, the ones who don't own up during that time will go to jail and will be prosecuted by a bunch of independent people who can be funded from outside of uh, money that's controlled by the executive. Is there any chance that that is at all possible in this country? Or is that a pipe dream? Well, uh, our constitution, for starters, doesn't make provision for such a body. Uh, and prosecutions are the sole prerogative of the National Prosecuting Authority, and for good reason. Um, you can't have, you know, many dogs fighting over one bone. Having said that, um, I have a, a private member's bill um, that I'm busy preparing to put through Parliament, which proposes just such a body. Um, not necessarily the kind of body that you envision, but uh, a body to replace the Director to Special Operations or the Scorpions. Um, but outside of the National Prosecuting Authority. Uh, so they've, they've now developed this investigating directorate that they've housed inside the NPA, and, uh, and the minister has now said that he's made it permanent. Well, yippee. Um, the very reason that the scorpions could be dismantled with such ease was because, and they were dismantled solely because they went after ANC politicians. Um, 
So the only reason they were dismantled with such ease is because they were housed within the NPA, and it was within the prerogative of uh, of the uh, of, of government to to uh, undo them just as they do them. You know, they tied the shoelace; they can undo it. So this private members bill sets up an independent body outside of the NPA to deal only with uh, the kind of corruption we've seen in state capture. So state capture cases, very high level corruption. Um, that type of matter to free up the NPA to do all the other matters because understand while they while there's pressure on them to prosecute all of these very high level uh, people that you talk about who should absolutely be prosecuted they should have been prosecuted long ago they should all have been in jail long long ago while they're doing that they also have to prosecute the nuts and bolts cases housebreakings uh, rapes which are serious murders which are serious all of those cases still have to be attended to every single day as well. And you talk about another important part of the work that Parliament does, bills and and kind of pushing through legislation that creates the frameworks. Can you just, and, and I don't think a lot of people understand how that works. So speaking of this bill that you're, you're uh, putting t- through Parliament, can you talk us through the broad strokes of what it takes to get that bill signed into law? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a, quite a lot of work. Eh? You have to conceptualize the bill, um, and, and that bill uh, sets up what, what we would like to refer to as the Anti-Corruption Commission. So it will have powers to, it will be capacitated and resourced by government, but it will be independent along the lines of the um, Gender Commission, the Human Rights Commission, uh, the Public Protector's Office, uh, those type of Chapter 9 institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be resourced by uh, people who can prosecute, people who can investigate, people who have forensic capabilities, accounting, cyber forensics, etc. All of the uh, capabilities that you would need to uh, prepare, investigate, prepare, and prosecute these types of cases, uh, and would be resourced uh, by, by people who have that kind of um, ability and experience. Uh, so. And, and that, and there are many of those people around. Um, you could capacitate an office like that um, outside of the uh, outside of the NPA um, quite easily. Uh, but to 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 get that bill to be on, a you have to conceptualise the bill. Then it has to be drafted. Uh, Parliament has a, 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 a an office, a, a department that does that. So you tell them what you have in mind. They draft it. It goes backwards and forwards, and everybody adds and subtracts and hammers it until it's more or less what you have in mind, um, you then need to put a private, I'm talking about a private member's bill, not an ordinary piece of legislation that emanates sure. from, say, Department of Justice. Right. Uh, then has to, um, it then has to get the, you have to get the permission of your caucus. So I, I need the permission of the DA caucus to proceed with such a, a concept. Uh, with the bill then eventually gets fashioned. Uh, we've just done it now with what we want to call the Cyber Commissioner Bill. We want to set up an office uh, called the Cyber Commissioner's Office, um, an office that's supposed to envisage to take care of all the cyber needs of South Africa. So to prevent and 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 uh, assist with when it happens, these type of ransomware attacks we've seen on Justice, on mm-hmm. SASA, on on whatever, um, it will subsume the office of the of the uh, information regulator. Um, because that obviously hasn't been particularly effective for a variety of reasons. Some of them are good reasons. And, and, uh, and so the, the passage of such a bill is then 
once your caucus has approved it, uh, the, the drafting gets done, you hammer it into shape, uh, you then um, advertise it in the Government Gazette. Uh, the Cyber Commissioner's Bill has already been advertised. Uh, you get public comment on it. You then take that public comment and work uh, all the, uh, the good points uh, into, into the bill. So you, you improve the bill with the, with the public comments um, and you, you fix it yet again. Then it will go out, uh, it will be advertised once more. And then it must be uh, submitted to Parliament. So then it goes through uh, whatever committee, that would be our committee, the Justice Committee, goes through the committee, it gets uh, dealt with there, gets hammered a little bit more. And then eventually it will be uh, presented in the National Assembly, either for approval or not. And if they approve it, then it uh, goes to the president to be signed into law. And if they don't approve it, it goes into the dustbin. <laughs> Two years later. Yeah. yeah. But it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's hasn't even, I mean, it's taken about a year. Yeah. Uh, Glynis, are you um, are you ever worried because of the kinds of people who you go after in these these commissions of inquiry and these parliamentary committees? Are you ever worried uh, about cases that you did years ago at the NPA? I mean, do you need special personal protection? Are you the kind of person who's uh, acutely and and I think rightly concerned about your own safety and security? Not in the least. Um, I have. I have uh... The, coincidentally, I own the two most beautiful dogs in the world. Yes. Um, and, and that includes Alice, I'm sorry to say. Uh, and they're, uh, each capable of eating m- more than their body weight in, uh, people who bother me. Um, so, so I have absolutely no fear, no. I fear, I fear only three things, sharks, locusts, and my orthodontist. Wow. <laughs> oh, there's a takeaway quote. Sharks, orthodontists, and locusts. Yeah. So now we have to see you smile so we can see the teeth. We've <laughs> not done Garrett, it. I'm it's I'm very, very afraid. <laughs> Gareth, I've got one last thing to toss in Gladys' direction. Gladys, what do you think of outsourcing our prisons to Rwanda? <laughs> <laughs> this is a constitutional democracy. I firmly believe... <laughs> <laughs> Glynis, thanks for your time today. It's uh, great to see you and uh, catch up with you again. And um, I know you're not particularly bothered by the fact that you were the flavor of the week last week and you probably won't be next week. But all that uh, incessant grinding that has to be done in Parliament and in particular in the Justice uh, Shadow Portfolio, I wish you luck. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks, Glynis. Cheers. There's Glynis Breitenbach, who is a a former advocate, former NPA prosecutor, and now also Shadow Minister of Justice in Parliament for the DA. Sure. All right. Well, I mean, Canton is bristling to just bring up a little bit about Russia. I know you are. No, actually, you want to talk about in Sudan, actually. Yes, well, well, Sudan ties into the whole Russian question. And uh, we only got got eight minutes, so go on. Well, let's try and talk about Sudan in a couple of minutes. So Sudan has once again been in a state of war, civil war, over the past couple of days, pretty much uh, disaster, since, yeah. since the weekend. Right. Uh, not as much of a disaster because, you know, there's fighting in the streets, but, it, you know, it's not actually affecting the civilian population yet. But it's, you, it, it, these are between the two people who are vying for power at the moment. Well, yeah, effectively, but it, it's one of the interesting scenarios where you have um, a, a private uh, uh, militia under the control of one of the factions and 
the history of Sudan is that it was basically uh, an uneasy truce that was carved out between various militias, and it just post, so happens post Bashir. Well, actually, pre-Bashir, he, because Bashir yeah. enough himself was, uh, you know, uh, heading up one the of, leader of a junta. Yes, you know, one, one, one of one of, a, one, of one of a group of, of particular militias. But you must understand the the kind of chain of events that we have here. So, 2019, we have a coup where Bashir is uh, is toppled and he is ousted. But and prior, incarcerated, he went to jail, did he not? Yeah, he went to jail for uh, for for two years. Prior to Bashir being uh, put onto the ICC's watch list, Bashir had reached an agreement with the Russians to allow them to build a naval base on the Sudanese coastline on the uh, the Red Sea, which immediately necessitated the need for the West to regime change uh, Bashir. And so he, uh, he was taken out. Now, oh, at the time, the RSF, the guys who are currently instigated, they are the Janjaweed militia, effectively, yes. And uh, but <laughs> but more importantly, these guys, for a militia. these these guys had been. And it's four, on horse, by the way, it's four twenty today. So a special mention to the Janjaweed militia. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. So uh, at uh, uh, the point at which the uh, um, this regime change took place. Uh, uh, a couple of years ago, you had a very close relationship between the RSF, the Janjaweed guys, and uh, the Wagner group of Russia, you know, uh, mm. led by, uh, uh, by Perosian. And so the Russian um, private uh, militia ended up training the Sudanese private militia, except there was then a parting of ways between them two years ago. And then last week, you had the RSF then holding meetings with the collective West. Mm. And guess what? They then launched the coup. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Yes. And and so, you know, the entire thing that you see happening right now is essentially a quest on the part of the United States to prevent the Russians from setting up a naval base in the Red Sea. So there's a proxy war. It it is a proxy war, yes. and, And guess who is... Very quiet about all of that, even though they have plenty to say about wars in other people's countries, is where is our pandering Naledi Pandor here? Very quiet. They could have... They... Well, I don't know. You know, that's not necessarily fair to, to say that Pandor's been quiet because no one's actually put the question to her as far as I'm aware. Oh, she doesn't need anyone to put a question to her to put her views out there in but, the world. You know, but ask yourself, who actually ends up... Uh, Giving the lady Pando a platform, the media. Okay, yeah, and and they tend to amplify particular signals. So they amplify signals. You want to put it on the record? We have invited her here. Yes, (laughs) should she wish to come. The invitation stands. But um, uh, Durko has still been um, uh, talking about South Africans who are currently in. Uh, in Sudan, because there's a strong contingent of South Africans who are in Sudan. So there are two things that we can't let go before we finish the show. Otherwise, people are going to think we're avoiding them. First of all, Fox News had to make the biggest payout by a media organization in history hey, for this issue they've got against the Dominion, Dominion voting. I actually had a seven, Jacob Zuma seven, moment when seven, I saw that number. 798 million. It was all an right, interesting so, figure. So let's be clear about this. What Fox News did not want to do was put Rupert Murdoch and all of their hosts Understand, yes. Because it seems to even the untrained eye that they knew that this whole thing by Trump about a, um, 
what did he call it? A stolen, stolen election, election was nonsense. And we can see from their private messages and so on. No, I wouldn't draw that yeah. correlation. You see, uh, what they do not want is for people to be aware that even though Fox News people had a particular sense of what was in fact going down, they were willing to push an alternative narrative, which is not very different to the scenario that we had at Twitter where you had people who were fully aware of the fact that A, Trump had not violated uh, Twitter's rules of, uh, of engagement, B, that there was no evidence to directly link him to January 6th, but they still used the opportunity to ban him from Twitter in any case. And really what this is doing, the paying of the $798 million is to prevent a scenario where People just get hauled before the courts and have to testify. It's a lot of money, huh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Fox must have really... It's a lot of money to protect <laughs> people from telling yeah, the that's, truth. That's, a, that's it's, a lot of... It's, it's uh, a lot of money from our perspective, but, you know, from the point of view of... Uh, I think they've got uh, four, uh, four billion in liquid capital and, and, and to throw away 700 and something million, you have to be pretty guilty. And now they are facing so other... It, but, but now what this also does is it opens them up mm-hmm. to other individuals who have similar claims. Correct. And it's already... Oh, and and it opens up other media organizations to the same thing. It's created a precedent. Okay. Well, but the the other things that we're not talking about, okay, um, we're not talking about the fact that we've now had the Guantanamo documents that show that a couple of the hijackers Mm -hmm. of the 9-11 were CIA assets. Right. Okay. Nobody's talking about that. Uh, no one's talking about the 400 million that was revealed that has been siphoned off by Zelensky and uh, right. Uh, and uh, anything and, to say and, about and, either of those uh, and his colleagues? No, I think it's just important that people are aware and they go. People looking, have got to know. They, they need to go looking for the information, you know, right. to recognize that these guys uh, are fundamentally, you know, enriching themselves at the uh, expense of sending people to die. At the, at the front lines of the battlefield. Listen. No no one's talking about the fact that the Saudis have uh, effectively cut ties with the U.S. and that um, they've built relationships now with China and with Russia. And for the first time, you've had Russian warships docking in at Saudi Arabian ports. There's, yeah, there's, there's a lot there's, going there's, on. There's a range Gunini, of right? Listen, the Americans need their own word for Gunini. Here uh-huh. in South Africa, we can give them some lessons on how to deal with in a 24-hour news cycle with all of the crap that's flying thick and fast. I mean, every single one of these things is really shifting at breakneck speed. Hearing all of this news uh, with only a minute to go, I want to know if I can book a place on that rocket of Elon so I can get the hell off this planet because it seems to <laughs> Where's me... Where's the rocket going? I, I, I don't mind. Why would, you want to, why would you want to be in any other country? We, we have perfect lives out here. You, uh, uh, Pumi and me, you know, mm. what are we short for? When last you fill up your car, perfect lives. It's expensive as hell out there. Are you yes, joking? it is expensive as hell. But, you know, at the same time, I am able to fill up my car. All right. And and so are you. And so are you, Pumi. All right. Okay, well. We shouldn't uh, grumble so much. Happy for- this is the greatest country I, in the I, world. I don't agree. I mean, you know, I don't disagree normally. Um, I'm, I think it's just there are, you know, there are a lot of reasons why we should keep our eyes open which is why you bring up these stories right at the end of the show and you like, know you uh, can have sex in, you can have sex in the daytime on a domestic flight on a no flight to exactly okay <laughs> we didn't even touch on that wow 
Um, my Lucy, country, the sweet, sweet land alive of with possibilities. Alive, thank you. Alive thank with you. possibility. Yeah. What a I great mean, where time. else in the world can you do this? How big is that? A good seat? story to tell. <laughs> a good story to tell. Thank you. That's what I, I was just like. What is what? How big is this plane seat that these people oh. were in? But anyway. <laughs> All right. Go, happy 420, everybody, and uh, good luck with the launch today of this rocket. Let's see if it can get human intelligence to other planets, because God knows we haven't got any left here. <laughs> Cheers, everyone. <laughs> Cliffcentral.com.